Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. My name is H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. Hey, everybody. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, guys, uh, today we are so uh, honored to have a, a repeat guest today, uh, Steve Spear. Uh, Steve is Steve does a lot of great things. He uh, teaches at MIT. He does a lot of consulting work. He uh, is an author of many books and papers, uh, papers that have been in the Harvard Business Review. Uh, uh, he had a book called Chasing the Rabbit that was redone probably 12, 13 years ago, uh, High Velocity Edge. And uh, yep. a great book. And then uh, and then coming out this fall, he has a new book called uh, Wiring the Winning Organization that we'll talk about. Uh, Steve, it's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, thank you for being here. And uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on right now in your life and, uh, you know, your work. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for uh, inviting me. Um, I don't think uh, your audience needs to be. Re- well, maybe they do to be reminded because they're in it every day. But just. Uh, the uh, invaluable work people like you and your colleagues do every day. And it, it, what comes to mind is um, our family went through a very difficult uh, end of life experience um, it, within the last couple of weeks. And mm. I just have to say that even in that circumstance where there was no opportunity for cure, the, um, the comfort provided both to the patient and the family members speaks uh, such testimony to the folks who go into professions like yours. And in fact, it was so meaningful, you know, maybe even coming through uh, on the teams through the uh, computer and whatnot, how I'm getting a little choked up already. And I'm not kind of a choke up kind of guy. So I just want to say thank you for all the work you do for the betterment of others. And, uh, you know, and again, I, I know the enormous amount of time and effort just to acquire the basic skills you need to do that sort of thing. And then the constant reinforcement of those skills and the investment of your own time, your own emotional energy, and then the support you get from your own families in order to make these commitments to other people. Again, I just want to say uh, thank you with enormous appreciation on my behalf, on behalf of my family, et cetera, for our experience uh, for, for that kind of care and comfort over the last uh, month or so. So thank you. Well, um, we, we, we certainly appreciate that. And, uh, you know, Steve, we're sorry for uh, for what what your family's been going through, and and you know it's 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 books like yours and the work that you've done that have allowed healthcare to um, to move forward and yeah. improve. And uh, you know, along that that vein, I just want to talk a little bit about you know your book, High Velocity Edge. I mean, it it was a, yeah. a cutting edge book that uh, you know you talked about how some it, it, no matter what the sector, how some companies were able to just totally outpace their competitors, and they really they really weren't competitors, and and it yeah. wasn't even a linear that over time it became almost exponential, and, and you you looked at all these organizations and you came up with uh, common themes like you know you know how they were able to you know, discover problems immediately and yeah. and, and make improvements and, and, and disseminate that information. Um, and you've got a new book coming out. What, what What's new about uh, wiring the uh, winning organization? Is there any 
have you learned things that are radically different than than with yeah. high velocity edge? Yes. Yeah, so great question. Um, there, there's certainly new content in the book. If you start thinking about. Um, well, let, let me tie this back across all, all my um, work is it's motivated by this paradox. All else equal, certain organizations are able to deliver far more value into society than their counterparts. And this is true. Uh, my original, original motivation was seeing this, uh, having seen this in industry, but it's true. And not only is it true, but it's repl replicable in healthcare and all sorts of other services. So what, what's the common difference? Is that um, typically when we start thinking about the work we do there, we think about it at three levels. And this is one of the things we talk about in the in the book, which I hadn't made quite so clear in the high velocity edge. The first level is the literally or figuratively the object on the bench top in front of us. So for someone who's doing old industrial work, it might be a gear. Uh, for someone doing you know the highfalutin stuff, it might be the gene that's being manipulated. But stuff you all do, it might be the patient or the the ailment. You know, it's it's the the scientific, the technical, the biological object in front of you. That's layer one. And and understanding layer one requires a tremendous amount of expertise, as you all know. The second layer is the instrumentation through which we express our capability onto the object in front of us. So for someone working in an industry, it might be uh, uh, some type of machine to work on the gear. It might be CRISPR to work on the gene. The work you all do, it's the instrumentation, the equipment, et cetera, the sonogram to see what's going on inside the body, the MRI, the CAT scan, the surgical equipment, whatever else it happens to be. There's a second layer. There's a third layer, and um, this is the one where this explains the paradox, which is this is the layer, what we call the overlay of, of social circuitry. And I'll explain what I mean by both those terms. But the circuitry is the, uh, the processes, the procedures, the routines, the norms by which the uh, contributions of individuals can harmonize into a well-integrated choreography of collective action towards common purpose. And I think what we've really come to appreciate is that what explains this paradox between great performance and more typical performance is that social circuitry. And the reason we, in fact, we call it social circuitry, it's not meant metaphorically, but it's more, meant more literally, because if you start thinking about a circuit, what does a circuit do? It brings something which is in high concentration in a location where it's not actually needed to a place where it's in low concentration, but it, it's actually desired. So that's what an electrical circuit does, right? It brings charge from where it is to where it needs to be. That's what plumbing does. It brings pressurized liquids from where it is to where it needs to be. Um, in the biological systems, this is what circulatory systems and the systems that carry hormones through a body to take a message from one location and signal it somewhere else in the neurological system, right? It, it's circuitry. And the performance of a system depends on the, um, the health of that circuitry. And again, you know, I don't want to overspeak into your domain, but you know, a, a lot of um, diseases when the biological circuitry breaks down and then what, a lot of what you have to do is then intervene to either reestablish or complement for it. And so the, the case we make in winning, or, or I'm sorry, the case we make in wiring the winning organization is that there's a number of very robust ways to create that social circuitry so that people can more fully express their ingenuity onto layer one and layer two problems, the object in front of us and the instrumentation through which we work, and they have to spend so much less of their ingenuity trying to solve for layer three problems, which is the trying to figure out 
What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to do it with? Who am I depending on? Who's depending on me? Where do I get information? Where do I get materials? Where do I get resources, et cetera, et cetera? So again, and, and I appreciate the question, um, doctor, back to the contrast between the high velocity edge and wiring the winning organization. In um, the high velocity edge, in effect, what we're really talking about is the design, the operation, and improvement of this circuitry in processes that uh, progress through time, whether it's the diagnosis, the treatment of a patient uh, through a healthcare system, whether it's um, the development, the design, the production, the creation of a, a car um, through uh, all of those processes. The focus in that book was very much on these um, processes which have progressed through time. What we managed to do with uh, wiring the winning organization is talk about other situations where where it's around the design of complex systems which it's more your concern is spatial rather than temporal but again it, it loops back to this issue how do you create the conditions in which individuals can give much fuller expression to their uh, their creativity to their ingenuity and have their individual expression of all that good human expression of human potential have that um, harmonize well towards common purpose. And, that, and again, that, that's the common theme. How do we create conditions in which you and your colleagues can do the best they can do in service to somebody else's needs? Yeah, I think that's a, a really great intro. And I want to dive into you know the details a little bit more, but I just want to make sure, um, I guess I'm following you know, we're, I think all of us are familiar with the concept of, of hardwiring. You know, we say we need to hardwire X, Y, and Z process so that it happens every time. Um, you know, some things in, in healthcare that I think across the, the country we do really well is, um, you know, maybe stroke care. Uh, patient comes to the, into the emergency department. A lot of places around the country have a very similar hardwire process for how to yeah. take care of a patient or a heart attack. Uh, but there's a lot of other areas, um, you know, sepsis being one that's, you know, coming along a little bit, but not quite where it needs to be. Are those the sort of complex processes that you're talking about with wiring or am I missing it? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so I'd say uh, yes. And and what I mean, yes, is those processes, as I talked about in um, the high velocity edge, you know, there's a significant portion of that book. Obviously, significant portion of that book are devoted to Toyota because that's where I did my embedded immersive karate kid training. Um, and, you know, substantial portions to Alcoa where I also had reinforcement on these ideas. But big parts of that book are healthcare, both in the beginning of the book where we talk about how systems fail to harness the, uh, the ingenuity of individuals in the enterprise towards good purpose. And then in the, the capstone uh, chapter in that book is actually expressions of how organizations do that well. And in that chapter, there are examples of um, uh, Allegheny General Hospital, UPMC, et cetera, where um, they did such a fabulous job of taking work which was done by individuals feeling isolated within their role, within their function, and um, stringing them together into a coherent, uh, coordinating process to do things like deliver far better care, um, with less overburden on staff to many more people. So elimination of uh, C-labs and elimination of ventilator-associated pneumonia, medication mis uh, misadventures, et cetera, et cetera. So um, for sure, when we talk about wiring the organization, so you've got 
all that connective tissue so it lines up so someone knows not only what to do, but what to do in the context of the larger effort uh, for sure. Um, and then, of course, it, it spills over into other applications, too. You know, it's it's just real interesting, <clears throat> Steve, is that, you know, and I, Skip is not here, but he, he always mentions, uh, you know, socio-technical systems and and you know and he says a lot of a lot of places we um we emphasize the technical but we pay lip service right. to the to the social and and it seems like that you know that is really the key is the social aspect in, in creating those systems because you know and and we're always as long as human beings are doing the work you're going right. to have the you're going to have the the social aspect and and we'll never be able to completely rely on on the technology uh so the limiting factor is not that is not going to is going to be the the human aspect and creating yeah. those systems that allow humans to as you said you know express themselves and their creativity as easily as possible yes yeah, so let, let me pick up on that great term of socio-technical system so when we start thinking about technical of any system you know, that's the layer one benchtop and that's the layer two instrumentation stuff. And, and certainly, you know, in, in our lifetimes, we've seen a huge explosion um, in terms of what's possible on layer two in terms of instrumentation and the things we can actually affect at layer one. You know, CRISPR and genes, just for example, right? Um, and all sorts of other uh, marvelous technology. One of the things, and I think I point this out in the high velocity edge, is as layer two becomes more and more capable layer three actually becomes more and more complex. And I believe I actually use healthcare as the example that you go back 40 years, 50, certainly 60 or 70, there just wasn't that much available science and technology through which doctors could express their expertise, which meant was that um, the, uh, the group of people who were needed in order to treat a patient weren't that many. It was, it was very doctor centric because then it required great skill, but there wasn't much to actually do. But as we started adding um, all this great science and technology, we started adding all these specializations where we had uh, more and more capability in less and less of the complete treatment. And that's where the social part of the social technical system comes in, which is um, in order to deliver outstanding care to patients, it's not just a matter of assembling the experts who are phenomenal at manipulating the layer two instrumentation onto the layer one problems. We also have to have this intricate web of processes and procedures so that all the contributions land at the right time, in the right place, in the right form. So the pieces come together into this uh, beautiful and glorious whole. And if they do, it's fantastic. And if they don't, what you have is, frustration, disappointment, disarray, et cetera. So, you know, I know your book is not out yet. I think it comes out in November, so probably not too um, long after um, we actually release this episode. But, um, uh, you know, just looking at the, the the bio on or the description of it on, on Amazon, it says, um, you know, organizations can move from the danger zone to the winning zone by employing three key mechanisms. Can you touch on those mechanisms and, and, and what you mean by Absolutely. them? Absolutely. Yes. So th this term of uh, danger zone, winning zone, what we're doing is setting up a contrast. And again, what we're trying to address is what we think is uh, 
people get, but it's often overlooked in terms of explicit declaration, that we form organizations to solve problems which we can't solve on our own, right? That's it. You know, if I could solve it on my own, why do I have to join an organization? I'll just be a freelancer, right? The reason we form organizations is because we need all these specialties to come together to, to address a bigger problem, a problem which is much bigger than ourselves. And um, again, back to this issue that the reason we're, this is a people problem, a social, you know, the socio part of the social technical is that we have to engage people's minds in the solution of these problems. So first, the contrast on the danger zone winning zone, we say, what, what are the conditions in which it makes it really, really hard for people to solve problems? And it's like, all right, well, let's make the problems really complex. All right, uh, let's make the situation in which they're working uh, very fast moving. Let's increase the uh, the risks and the the uh, the consequences of getting the wrong answer. Um, let's uh, make sure that um, that there's little opportunity to learn from experience or experimentation. And these are some of the attributes of fast moving, high risk, uncontrollable, complex, non repetitive situations. Boom. Those are situations in which it's very hard to solve a problem. And unless you already have the pre-wired program of what to do and how to do it, you're going to fail. So anyway, in contrast, what's the winning uh, the winning zone is everything the same but opposite, right? Which is the problems are uh, less complex, they're simpler. Um, the situation is uh, not only slow or moving, so we can engage our deliberative, you know, as Kahneman and Tversky, you know, talked about fast thinking, slow thinking. It's a slow thinking environment rather than a fast thinking environment. So the problems are simpler. We can engage our slow thinking, not our fast thinking. Um, the risks of getting the wrong answer on the first try are less, so we have chance for iteration. Um, and we actually have opportunity for iteration, so we can learn through experience and experimentation. So that's the idea. And what's the difference between the danger zone and the winning zone? The danger zone is a place where human intellect is very, very hard to engage. And the winning zone is, is the conditions in which it's much easier. So anyway, this ties to our, uh, our three mechanisms. Um, we talk about three. One we call slowification, which in truth is a made up word. I, I admit that. The other is simplification. The third is what we call amplification. What I mean by slowification is uh, changing the conditions in which we're asking people to solve problems. Too often we ask people to solve problems on the fly and what we call performance. And it's like, what do we do right now? Well, the only thing we can do when we're performing and again, fast moving, uncontrollable. The only thing we can do now is what we've already taught ourselves to do in terms of biases, habits, routines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the encouragement there is that if you're anticipating being in a situation of high stakes, high risk, et cetera, take full advantage of vetting your ideas in early stage planning through aggressive stress testing, red teaming, on and on, and use practice not as a chance to rehearse that, you know, you've mastered the script I've written, but we actually use practice to find flaws in the script. And if we do that, and this is the slowification piece, if we take our problem solving out of the fast moving environment and bring it into these slower moving, more control environments, we're more likely to get to good answers that are then dependable in the performance environment. So that's, that's the first one, slowification. Uh, like I said, I think there's a, maybe actually a German word for exactly what I'm describing, but there's no English word, so we made one up. Um, <laughs> then, yeah, go ahead. Um, no, no. And then, uh, yeah, the problem with using a German word, it's like f 42 letters and they're all consonants, right? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the second, the second um, mechanism we talk about in the book is something we call simplification. 
And what simplification is, is taking uh, what is a very large problem and partitioning in some fashion. So you still are stuck with the large, complex, uh, hard to fathom problem, but you figured out how to break it into uh, smaller pieces. So the pieces themselves are simpler to understand. Not only that, but the pieces are smaller. And so you have to coordinate the efforts of fewer people at a time uh, to solve the problem. So, um, and we, we talk within um, the simplification of three techniques, but actually I'll, I'll, I'll just, I work with a guy, or the guy, I'm very good friends with a guy who had a long career dealing with uh, quote unquote complex patients at Mass General here in Boston. And uh, when I asked him how he figured out a patient who had multiple comorbidities and had uh, all these different medications, said, how do you get that straight in your mind? He said, you don't get that straight in your mind. I said, well, how do you treat them then? He says, incrementally. He says, what I do is um, I take the patient and once we've stabilized the patient, what we do is we start withdrawing one out of many medications to see the effect, or we reduce the, the, the dosage of one medication out of several. And then we stabilize that one, and then we do another one to see the effect of that. And then we do another one, and we do see the effect of that. And he said, we can never, at first certainly, understand the complexity of the entirety of the patient. But we take this incremental approach of taking the very, very big problem and adding novelty to a stable platform bit by bit, rather than in single large bites. And he said, that's how we come to an understanding of a complex patient. So anyway, within this, um, these mechanisms, there's the slowification we discussed. There's the simplification to make big problems. The piece of it that you're addressing at a single time smaller. Um, and that's one example of, uh, of several. And then the third thing is amplification. And amplification is uh, if slowification makes it easier to solve problems because you've changed the environment and simplification makes the problems themselves easier to solve. The third mechanism, amplification, makes it more obvious you have a problem in the first place. And um, I'll make two references. Again, both are somewhat self-interested. Uh, self so in the high velocity edge, we open that book and ask the question, why do systems fail? And we, there's a chapter dedicated to this idea of ambiguity and workarounds. And we have several examples. One is of uh, an automotive plant that slowly de declines. Um, there's an example of the, uh, the space shuttle catastrophes. And then there's an example of uh, problems in, in the delivery of medical care. So um, this issue of this mechanism of amplification, I actually give a lot of attention to its presence and absence in the high velocity edge. So um, I think in chapter three, we talk about the, the space shuttles having these catastrophic experiences, not because of things that happened for the very first time on the Challenger or the Columbia, but things that had happened on almost every preceding flight, but the problem was there was the signal of something wrong, but the signal wasn't received and reacted to appropriately to make the problem go away. We talk about um, errors that were documented in this series of uh, quality grand rounds, um, where it was evident that there were things wrong, but the signal that hadn't been uh, broadcast, transmitted strongly enough, nor had been received and reacted to well enough to remove the vulnerabilities in the system. And then a patient, Mrs. Grant, ends up with getting uh, several doses of uh, insulin rather than therapeutic heparin. And so mm -hmm. we pick up on this theme in wiring the winning organization with this idea that you have to slowify to make it easier to solve problems, simplify to make the problems themselves easier to solve, but then you have to amplify and make it 
just patently obvious that there's something wrong in the system um, so that you know to pay attention to it sooner than later and with more conviction than not. And like I said, I, I, I preface this by saying this is going to be a little bit uh, self-interested. So one is mentioning back to the high velocity edge. But you guys have been phenomenal partners with my colleagues around this C2Solve software we created, which mm -hmm. is nothing but a way to <clears throat> the problem. So our C2Solve alert uh, product is nothing but an amplification technique. And I think the way you all have been using it uh, in, in, in your system is making it easier for nurses when they have a problem to call attention to it so they don't have to persist and work around and otherwise make do, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think we have it actually in place that so your patients, if there's a difficulty, rather than having to either deal with the difficulty or then a family member searching around for the nurse, the technician, the doctor, they just quick and easy call out the problem. They amplify it so someone comes and pays attention. So uh, again, am amplification is the third of these three mechanisms, which we argue is part of having a well-wired organization. Steve? Let me ask you, you know, when you're talking about some of the healthcare examples, you know, my mind uh, thought about um, what we do for tumor board or complex uh, cardiology uh, cases where um, we actually have a group that would meet to discuss a specific case and you got representatives from, you know, radiology, um, oncology, et cetera. And so don't, it, don't forget surgery. Well, surgery, mm -hmm. I guess y'all are important <laughs> in some regards, but it, you know, it's, some people, to me, it, it slows down the process. Um, it simplifies it by breaking it up into individual areas, uh, and then you're amplifying it because you're involving a lot more people. Is that would that be an example of how something good has been wired? Yeah, that, that's a phenomenal example. One of the terms we introduce in wiring the winning organization is the notion of coherence, and we deliberately picked that term for uh, the double entendre effect. So what we mean by coherence, and this is sort of the dictionary definition, is that it's something which is complete and whole. So you take a, you know, Dr. What you're describing is a situation where you have a patient come in and uh, it requires um, multiple specialties to understand what's going on with the patient and how to treat it. So you have to image it and get other, you know, the, the radiology contribution and the oncology contribution to understand what the radiology refers to. And then perhaps surgery comes in if there's a, right? So the coherence there, is making sure that you have all the people necessary to actually uh, come to an understanding of the problem and a resolution of the problem in the same place at the same time so they can work on the problem together. Now, the double entendre around um, coherence is not only is uh, this notion of complete and whole, that you have all these specialists focused on the problem together, but also um, coherence means the ability to act in a logical and consistent fashion. And if you lack coherence, the first term, the complete and whole, then you can't act in a coherent fashion, logical, consistent. Um, you end up uh, acting in an incoherent fashion. Um, you know, let me just pick up on this. Uh, coherence becomes um, a very important concept in the book because it's possible to uh, design your social, this overlay of social circuitry that um, you've created boundaries far greater than you needed in order to have coherence. This is where everyone is on the team. And, 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 and there, there's uh, symptomology around everyone on the team, which is most people show up at meetings reluctantly. Um, and when they leave the meeting, they say, why was I there? I didn't have anything to contribute and there's nothing I extracted from it. And so in the book, we talk about examples of that where whoever was leading the, uh, the enterprise 
didn't think about trying to find the smallest possible coherent unit and consequently the easiest one um, in which to work. So this is the simplification element. But of course, there's the, there's the possibility uh, of subdividing so far that you lose coherence in the other direction, which is you no longer have all the necessary um, um, resources to behave in a consistent and logical fashion. Um, and this you see, and this is certainly a, a risk in healthcare, is where you organize around functions, but you don't organize around care teams. So you have oncologists discuss, uh, actually, I'll, I'll just give an example. So I remember one time shadowing um, uh, residents at a, uh, a local hospital, not to be named, and uh, we happened to get to uh, the bedside of a patient who had been in for uh, surgery, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the surgeons came by and did an evaluation, had a conversation about her. Then the pulmonologist came by because she had been in for lung surgery. She had pre-existing conditions, so the cardiologist team came by and they, they did their, their rounds in the morning. And then because she was suffering some form of dementia, the, psych, the psychiatric team came by to do their rounds. And I happened to eavesdrop on each of these teams, plus the nurses. And, and if one didn't know better, one would think they were discussing five different patients. And, and, and that was an example of incoherence, right? Because they hadn't, as you were describing the very positive, they hadn't assembled a team that had all the necessary resources to address the problem, which is the patient in that particular bed, the pieces had been fragmented. There had been this over-partitioning uh, of the problem into its component pieces. And um, of course, what ended up happening is that each of those teams came up with a course of action reflective of their own perspective because they didn't have the advantage of that cross-functional team you described. And of course, after the fact, there was all this compensatory attempt at coordination because it wasn't actually built into the fabric of the organization. So anyway, your example is an outstanding one and raises this issue of coherence is a very, very important concept in a book. Steve, uh, we're going to we'll have to wrap up here pretty soon, but I, I do have a question. When you and Gene were, were doing your research and, and getting material for the book, the different organizations, and I assume y'all y'all found organizations that did this in in all sectors. Did they just happen to stumble upon it, or or did they, or, or how did they get to that point? Did were, yeah. were they all at the same point, and then they they I, I don't want to say evolved, but they improved, or, or t tell us a little bit about that. Did you find any good insights from that? Yeah. So um, in the book. We actually used the, uh, the U.S. Uh, manned space program a number of times as a, a sterling example of slowification, simplification, and amplification. And another example, because of similar qualities, we talk about Amazon's development of the Amazon Web Services, AWS. And, and, and I find this one particularly fascinating. The, the story goes something like this, which is Amazon, when it was Jeff Bezos trying to ship books from, uh, he was buying them from a warehouse or a bookstore across the street. He picked Seattle, apparently, because that was where the world's largest bookstore was. So he could go take orders in the morning by email, get the books in the late morning, pack them up and ship them in the afternoon. And what ended up happening is the business grew, so did the business software. And um, as I started adding um, to books apparel, the complexity of the software exploded because books is, you know, one book. Maybe it comes in a Kindle version, right? So you got two of the same title. With closing, you got size and colors and styles and fashions. So... And um, what ended up happening is the software they had became so um, 
complex and intertangled that they, they lost their ability to update it. And you see this with other uh, IT systems. LinkedIn used to do shutdowns where for a day or two, they, when they were updating their system, you didn't have access to LinkedIn Live. Anyway, Jeff Bezos had this, at least you know, for the IT nerds, a famous memo uh, called the two pizza system. And yeah. basically what he said was that we're gonna um, organize teams that are no bigger than can be fed by two pizzas. All right, now he, here's the interesting part is that um, he recognized the layer three problem that so many people had to talk to so many other people simultaneously and coordinate their actions that basically they had to mobilize themselves. And he said the quality of an organization in which people can actually engage their, their ingenuity in collective fashion, it couldn't have teams bigger than two pizza teams. Then that drove the design of the layer one technology which was this business process software from this huge, kludgy, complicated, intertwined thing they had to this very partitioned Amazon Web Services. And like, like I said, I just want to bring this home. This was a fascinating case for me to um, really read because it was more Gene, my IT colleague, who brought it to my attention. It was they deliberately designed around the human mind, their processes, and then the technology followed the processes as opposed to what normally happens, which is we allow the technology to sprawl and intertwine and become this behemoth. And then we force our processes and consequently our layer three organization to conform. And then we force people to try and get their minds to conform to this um, incomprehensible artifact on layer one. So anyway, the book has a couple of examples of organizations which were very, very deliberate on thinking about what layer three has to look like and then designing layer one accordingly. So Amazon certainly, um, NASA back in the 60s, I, I think so. Uh, my impression is Toyota, they didn't do this as deliberately as I just described, but they figured out that that's how you have to design layer one and layer two to accommodate um, the engagement of people's ingenuity on layer three. So there's some, yeah, and, and just, just one last plug on the book is what I think you'll um, like is that we uh, picked a lot of examples, you know, I mentioned Amazon and Apple and um, uh, Toyota, but also a lot of good medical ones um, throughout the, the book. Uh, in fact, one, we celebrate the, uh, the Boston medical community's response to the marathon bombings 10 years ago and how mm. through slowification, this, is, this becomes our, each, each of our sections in the book have an exemplar case. So NASA, NASA is the exemplar case on simplification, Toyota on amplification, and the Boston healthcare community on slowification. That, there were a lot of things they had done in the preceding decade so that when those bombs went off 10 years ago and patients were flooding into um, the local emergency departments, they didn't have to invent on the fly what to do because they had built the routines and the processes and procedures to clear out patients, to uh, screen for uh, contamination, uh, radiological, chemical, et cetera, to um, manage the incorporation of people showing up to be helpful, but it weren't built into the process, identification of families and patients, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, one of the, the, the exemplar case in the first section of the book around the first mechanism is a, is a healthcare case. Wow. Well, Steve, time has flown, uh, flown by and we could sit here all afternoon, but, uh, but, but on behalf of Baptist, thank you very much for, for joining us again. Um, the book uh, Wiring the Winning Organization, it can be pre-ordered right now on Amazon. 
Uh, also, uh, High Velocity Edge, if you have not read that for our listeners, uh, it's a it's a great read as well. And uh, once again, Steve, on behalf of Baptist, thank you very much. You know, absolutely. You're welcome. And again, uh, you know, the two thank yous. One, um, the professional thank you, because um, you guys have been tremendous partners to my colleagues at Sea to Solve and uh, the amount of learning and advancement. And, and again, on behalf of my family, for what you all do. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. Thank you.